turn in the Word of God this evening to the book of Psalms and Psalm 66. That's not what the bulletin said, but I changed my mind as to what I wanted to preach on this evening. So instead of Psalm 115, we read Psalm 66. This is God's word. Make a joyful noise unto God, all ye lands. Sing forth the honor of his name. Make his praise glorious. Say unto God, how terrible art thou in thy works. Through the greatness of thy power shall thine enemies submit themselves unto thee. All the earth shall worship thee and shall sing unto thee. They shall sing to thy name. Come and see the works of God. He is terrible in his doing toward the children of men. He turned the sea into dry land. They went through the flood on foot. There did we rejoice in him. He ruleth by his power forever. His eyes behold the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves O bless our God, ye people, and make the voice of his praise to be heard, which holdeth our soul in life, and suffereth not our feet to be moved. For thou, O God, hast proved us, thou hast tried us, as silver is tried. Thou broughtest us into the net, thou laidst affliction upon our loins. Thou hast caused men to ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water, but thou broughtest us out into a wealthy place. I will go into thy house with burnt offerings. I will pay thee my vows, which my lips have uttered, and my mouth hath spoken when I was in trouble. I will offer unto thee burnt sacrifices of fatlings with the incense of rams. I will offer bullocks with goats." Come and hear, all ye that fear God, and I will declare what he hath done for my soul. I cried unto him with my mouth, and he was extolled with my tongue. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me, but verily God hath heard me. He hath attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, which hath not turned away my prayer, nor his mercy from me. That's the reading of the scripture. The text is verse 16. Verse 16 of this psalm. Come and hear, all ye that fear God, and I will declare what he hath done for my soul. For many years in seminary, I have assigned this text as Uh, one of the passages that the students must study in missions class, along with another text of the New Testament, to make them reflect on what they must be able to do personally. Before they speak outside of the church, they must be able and willing to speak inside the church. And Psalm 66, verse 16 is a description of that. Come, says the psalmist, 
and hear, and I will tell you what God has done for my soul. I never preached on this text until recently. I made a sermon on it in uh, connection with the Confession of Faith in Zion Congregation. And I want to preach that sermon tonight. Come and hear, all ye that fear God, and I will declare what he hath done for my soul. This text is found in the psalm that begins with David, look now, look, motioning for the people of God to come and see. And David says, if David is the author of the psalm, David says, I want you to see, first of all, what God has done for the church, broadly, the church, the congregation, the nation of Israel. And I want you, when you've seen what God has done for the church, to praise God. So the psalm begins that way. Make a joyful noise, verse 1. Sing, verse 2. Make his praise glorious, verse 2. And the reason that the Israelites ought to sing and make a joyful noise is because what has God has done. What God did, the psalm describes, is terrible. That word is used in verse 3, saying to God, how terrible art thou in thy works. And again in verse 5, come and see the works of God. He is terrible in his doing. But you mustn't imagine that that word terrible means awful in the sense of bad, but terrible in the sense of awesome. The works of God are such that they fill us with awe, and on account of being filled with awe, we then praise God for those works. What those works are, the psalm goes on to describe. At the very heart of them is verse 6. God opened the sea, reached down as it were, and spread the waters apart, made that land dry, and allowed the Israelites to escape from the land of Egypt and be free. God set them free. And then we won't go into detail what else he says in the first part of the psalm, but there are descriptions of God ruling by his power forever. There are descriptions of God holding our soul in life and suffering, not our feet to be moved, of God proving us and trying us and laying affliction upon our loins and causing men to ride on our heads, bringing us through fire and through water. And then another call to the people of God to join him. Look, he's motioning them. Join him. Let us praise God together for what he's done for us. And then comes a shift. Now, when we come to our text, David does not say, come and see. He says, look, come, come, and hear. And I want you to hear not what God has done for the church generally and us as a nation, but now I want you to gather around me, sit down for a moment, and listen to what God has done for me personally. You need to hear 
what God has done for my soul. And that's striking. That's what makes this text different from almost all of the other texts in Scripture. An invitation to make, no, an invitation to the people of God to hear Him make a personal testimony. Have you ever made a personal testimony? Or you do that very often. Say to your wife or your children or your friends, maybe on Thanksgiving when you're gathered together for dinner, I want you to hear today what God did for me. Inside me. Are you willing to listen? Does that make you nervous, perhaps, to hear of someone say to you, let's give our personal testimony? Maybe you respond to personal testimonies, or at least the suggestion of them, that that's probably Arminian, maybe Baptist, but it certainly isn't Reformed, and certainly isn't Protestant Reformed. Well, the Word of God corrects that misunderstanding and says it's biblical And if it isn't reformed, it ought to be a part of our confession and our faith, where we are not only willing but able to make this motion, look, come, and I want you to hear, as you gather around me, a great deal of what God has done for me personally. That's the text that we have before us. Come and hear all ye that fear God and I will declare what he hath done for my soul. So this is a personal testimony of the saved soul and that's the theme of the sermon this evening. Personal testimony of the saved soul. First of all, a testimony of what? Well, of what God has done for my soul. Secondly, a testimony to whom? All you that fear God. And thirdly, what's not explicit but implied in the psalm and the text, a testimony why? Why? Personal testimony of the saved soul. Testimony of what? Testimony to whom? And testimony why? As we begin the sermon this evening, we need to be very clear what it is that the psalmist says and what it is in this text that the psalmist does not say. He's not saying, and that was a part of the introduction, that I want to tell you about what God has done for us generally and us as a nation. He did that already. He could do that more. He knew history. He knew history well. And he was able to and fluent in describing to the people of God what God had done for Israel as a church, as a body. And we ought to be able to do that too. We can. We may. Be ready. We ought to be fluent in that. What God has done for our churches. Church history. Ecclesiastical history far prior to what the Protestant Reformed have been. But that's not this text. In the second place, neither does the psalmist say to the people of God what God had done for him in his 
earthly life. Physically and materially, he could have done that too because God had prospered him. God had given him health and strength and material possessions in abundance. And so we could do that also. God has in our age given to us far more than the church has had for many, many generations. We ought to be willing to talk about that. We probably are very willing to talk about how God has prospered us, but that's not this text either. In the third place, David does not say what he had done by the grace of God for God. He had done many things by the grace of God for God, and he could recount them. He didn't do that very often. He did in one place in particular when he was trying to convince Saul that he was the one to go up against Goliath. He said to Saul, when I was a lad, I took a bear and with one hand holding the bear and another hand holding a spear, I killed that bear and I did the very same thing for a lion to protect, with a lion to protect the flock. He could have, after that history, said, and I killed a giant with the first shot that came out of my slingshot. By the grace of God and the strength of God, this is what I did for God's church. And then later on, he could have recounted what he did when the Jebusites still inhabited Jerusalem. And they could not be dislodged from that high place. And he, with his fighting men, rid Jerusalem of the Jebusites. He could have talked about that, but that's not this psalm either. And we also could say to other people, if they ask, what have we done by the grace of God for the cause of the church and the people of God? And in the fourth place, what David did not do and what he would not be permitted to do because he did not believe it is to say what he did for his soul. David was not an Arminian. David was not a synergist. David did not say, well, God and I cooperated together in the salvation of my soul, and I'll tell you about God's part, and then I'll tell you about my part. None of that. We may not do that. He did not do that because, as I said, he wasn't an Arminian. He wasn't a synergist who believes that together the energy, synergy, combined with God's energy, his with God's accomplished salvation. Not that at all. What David said, come, I want you to hear now what God alone did for me. I didn't do it. God did it. He did it for my soul. I want you to hear what God did for the salvation of my soul. That word soul in the text is important. It talks about his inner life especially. And he is talking, as I said, about the salvation that God accomplished for him. And now we'll jump ahead in Jesus Christ. Be thinking of Christ. That's how we need to read it in the light of the New Testament. I say that because the text itself in its context says that. Go with me 
on a couple of steps in the psalm to see that. Number one, David said, I was in trouble. That's verse 14. Deep, deep trouble. Number two, the trouble I was in was so great that I could not deliver myself from it. There are times when we're in trouble and we need to get out of that trouble by ourselves with our own strength. Not here. David is talking about a trouble that was impossible for him to deliver himself from. And that comes out at the very end of the psalm when he says at the end of verse 20, God did not turn away my prayer nor his mercy from me. That mercy is a very important word to explain the kind of trouble. Mercy is extended to someone who's in trouble who can't deliver themselves from that trouble. Mercy is pity extended to someone who's on the ground, miserable, unable to get up. And that's the kind of trouble David said he was in. Trouble, impossible trouble. And now if you want to know what that trouble was, it was his sin. And that comes out in verse 18. Iniquity is my problem. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. And there he puts his finger on the heart of his problem. And now we in the New Testament can expand on that word and idea. Iniquity was his trouble. You can't get out of sin on your own. You can't deliver yourself from your iniquity by yourself. Your guilt, your pollution, your actual sin, your original sin, your sins of omission, your sins of commission, your violation of God's law, your breaking of God's covenant, your not keeping of your vows. You offended God. The good, gracious, kind God who gave you a place in his kingdom and made you a part of his family, you and I sinned against his grace and provoked him to his face. That's trouble. That's trouble that you need mercy for and pity on account of. That's trouble that you are in that you cannot deliver yourself from. And then the solution to that trouble. Trouble, impossible trouble, sin trouble, and the solution from, from that trouble is the gospel of the cross of our Lord Jesus the Christ. And you say, where does that come from? Well, start in verse 13. Where the psalmist says, I'm going to go into thy house with burnt offerings. Burnt offerings. And verse 15, I will offer to thee burnt sacrifices of fatlings. With the incense of rams, I will offer bullocks and goats. And those burnt offerings were a testimony that the wrath of God that ought to have come down upon him on account of his sin came down upon another as a substitute for him. And he says, because of that act of God, there is salvation for my soul. There is deliverance from me from the trouble out of which I could not deliver myself. That is what David wants you to know. 
That's what David said. Come and listen. I want to tell you how I have been a recipient of the grace of God. I who was in an impossible uh, situation. I who did not deserve to be delivered was delivered by the grace and kindness of God. Even in the dim light of the Old Testament, David could see those things. You must picture as it were, though David was not permitted to do that, David standing at the altar, he wasn't a priest, so he could not do that, but just imagine, that's the idea, standing at the altar, saying, I want you to come here, here, and I want you to see my connection to the altar of God, where the burned offerings were offered, that's what God did for my soul, that's my hope, that's my help, that's my salvation, that's my everything. And that translates into New Testament very easily, doesn't it? What David saw in the dim light of the Old Testament, we see in the clear light of the New Testament. Clear light of the New Testament. We don't stand by an altar anymore, but we, as it were, there isn't one here, that's okay, because we don't touch it anyway. But just think, this is where you stand and say, I want you to know that my salvation and what God has done for me is there at the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Perfect lamb as a substitute for me was offered for me when he didn't deserve to be burned under the wrath of God. That's my testimony. That's my hope. That's my salvation. That's what I want you to know. That's what God did for my soul. Christ is everything. Everything. Your trouble is your iniquity. It's not your sickness. It's not your loss. Although sickness and loss and disappointments are great trouble, it's your sin. It's my sin, my original sin, my actual sin. My sins of omission, my sins of commission, my guilt, my shame, my offense of God, my good God who gave me a place at his table, made me a member of his family, gave me a position in his kingdom. I have sinned against his grace and provoked him to his face. And he says to me as a sinner, The cross is what you need. And it's to the cross that I flee. And it's to the cross that I cling. And if there's one word, one word that summarizes the whole of the testimony of the saved soul, it's Christ. That's all. And that one word, of course, flowers out that little bud of a word Christ flowers out to everything and every petal on that flower means something and you can speak over and over and go on and on and never stop speaking about what Christ means for your soul your soul who don't deliver to deserve to be delivered your soul who needed mercy your soul pitiable miserable and God provided the sacrifice the Lamb of God Christ for me 
I will not die, but live and tell, because Christ died for me. Christ in me, I live, and the life that I live now, I live by the faith of the Son of God who gave himself for me. Christ with me, he's my friend, he's my bridegroom, he's my brother that sticks closer than any earthly brother, he's my companion. Christ makes a place for me in the house of God. Christ gives me a position in the family of faith. My life is Christ. My soul is at rest in Christ. I'm at peace if I have Christ. I'm full of Christ. And we can go on and on and on and on and never end. And that's what comes out in the text too because when David says in verse 16... I will declare what he hath done for my soul. That word declare not only means I'm going to shout it, and it not only means I'm going to recount the elements of what God has done for my soul. That is almost enough for us to say go on and on. But there's another dimension of the verb that says David is going to keep going. And what you have in the psalm here is simply a summary of what God had done for his soul. You imagine This is a sermon theme here in verse 16. And behind the scenes of this psalm, David sat down and spoke till midnight like Paul in that upper room where it got hot and kept going and going and going because he wanted you to know what God had done for his soul. So much more. Well, think of what Much more is there. Read the psalm on your own. Reflect on what God does to you with your sickness, with your loss, with your disappointments. That's the psalm. I cried to him in deep distress, and now his wondrous grace I bless because, and you fill in the blank of your life, and the trials that you've endured from which God has delivered you or in which God strengthens you. You went through fire. Maybe you were in the fire. You're going through the water. He lays affliction upon your head. He casts you into a net. The enemy rides over your head. And God either has or he will bring you into a wealthy place, on and on and on and on. What great things God has done for our souls. It's that confession of what God has done for us that we want to prepare our children to make. And this is the connection to the Confession of Faith sermon. Catechism prepares our children to make that confession. It teaches the young people to make this testimony, not, first of all, about what God did for others and for us, but a testimony of what God has done for me. For me, for my soul. You say, but wait a minute, don't we need the young people to confess 
what God has done for us? Well, of course, of course. And that's why catechism teaches what it does. Think of the very first question of the very first book that you children had in catechism in first grade. Who is your creator? And your answer was God. God. That's where you start. God. Always start with God. And then the book asks you, did God create all things? Yes. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God. What God has done. How do you know this about creation? That first book continues. God tells us about it in his word. That's the first book, the first class of catechism. Now, run through all of the Bible history that they received for seven years, what God has done for the church. Think about the Heidelberg Catechism. Think about the essentials of Reformed doctrine and the very last year of catechism. That is the fixed curriculum. There is also pre- and post-confession catechism. But just think of the last book of catechism in the fixed curriculum and the book of essentials. Lesson one, question one, what is above all things precious? Do you remember the answer? What is above all things precious? The knowledge of God in Christ. God is precious. And the knowledge of God and what he has done in our Lord Jesus Christ. And the very last lesson of that last book, lesson 30. What is the blessedness of the new heavens and the new earth to dwell without sin in the blessed of God's everlasting covenant of grace? It's all about God and what God has done from the very first book to the very last book, we want our children to learn about what God has done. And you go on and on and on and on. This isn't a gospel on a thumbnail that we'll cover for you in a couple of years, maybe one year in sixth or seventh or eighth grade. This is a catechism curriculum that takes the word Jesus Christ and opens it up so that all of the petals are exposed to the children. From the very first year that they're in catechism, all the way through, they learn the whole revelation of God and what God has done in our Lord Jesus Christ. We don't teach them only the issues of the day about war and pollution and social matters and abortion and the rest. We teach them what God has done in the history of the church. But what we must not fail to teach them is that all of this enables them to make a confession of faith. That is, what God has done for them. Everything that they learn needs to be applied personally to them so that they are able to say from the very beginning, I believe that God made me 
And I believe that God saved me. And because God saved me, I love Him. And I want you to know that God saved me. And I want you to know that I love Him. That's what we want to prepare our children to know and say. That's why when you get to the Heidelberg Catechism, it needs to be emphasized to these young people in 8th and ninth grade that the Heidelberg Catechism is personal. And the Heidelberg Catechism is experiential. It doesn't allow anyone who memorizes its questions and answers to say, this is what God did for them. It says, this is what God did for you. And you must say, what is your only comfort? You must say, that I, not them, not others, but that I, I, in body and soul am not my own, but I belong to my faithful Savior, who with His precious blood and the rest of Lord's Day 1 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Catechism needs to be personal. Catechism needs to address the heart. Catechism needs to be taught in such a way that verse 16 of Psalm 66 is not just sung. Come, all ye that fear the Lord, while I with grateful heart record what God has done for me. You know this altar number. But that Psalm 66, verse 16, is lived, lived, so that all of us are able to say to others what God has done for us. And at the heart of our confession of faith is a personal testimony of my relationship to our Lord Jesus Christ. Personal, personal, personal. You may learn about God, and you remember the question, wherein ought we to know God? And the answer is in His essence, names, attributes, persons, and works. And we learn all about God. Who He is, how many persons, how many beings, what He's done, what He's like. You can learn about man and His original state and His fall and His fallen condition. Christ and who Christ is, His names, His natures, His offices, His states. And you need to learn all of these things about who Jesus Christ is and the salvation that He has earned for us and applies to us as a covenant salvation and the seven elements of salvation, regeneration, all the way to glorification. You may learn all of those things, but you must learn every one of them personally so that you are able to say, this God is my God and that's me who fell and that's Christ who's mine and his salvation that I need in a church where I am a member and I live in hope. Hope for the coming again of Christ. Personal confession of faith. I make that point because in the history of our churches there's been a question of that. Whether in fact confession of faith is personal confession. If you go back about 150 years in the Reformed churches in the Netherlands, there was a large argument about that question. And some in the churches in the Netherlands allowed a confession of faith that was not a confession of personal faith. And then some of them who made confession of faith, they admitted to the Lord's Supper. And others, they said, no, 
You must not come to the Lord's Supper, but you must wait until you can make another confession of faith that is a personal confession of faith. Protestant Reformed churches faced something of that question about 50 years ago when one of our congregations made an overture to synod asking for synod to take those three questions of confession of faith and give them an introduction and a conclusion so that they're in a setting that is serviceable for liturgy, uh, the act of worship. They wanted something that the minister could read before and read after so that like there's a baptism form and a Lord's Supper form, there's a confession of faith form. And the committee went to work and that committee decided that instead of adding just an introduction and a conclusion, they would add to the questions a more personal element to those questions. And the Senate rejected that. But making a long story short, nothing was done either for an introduction or a conclusion or the change of the questions because Synod said that when we make confession of faith, it is personal. It is. You confess that you're going to live a new life and that new life is not that you went to the bars before and you're not going to go to the bars after. You watch things you shouldn't watch before and you won't after, but it means you're going to live out of the new life that's in you. And besides all of that, it's very easy because you eighth graders know what faith is. And faith is not only a certain knowledge of all that God has revealed to us in his word, but an assured confidence, Lord's Day 7, that not only to others, but to me also, is given freely for the merits of Jesus Christ, salvation, righteousness, and all of the other blessings of salvation. Faith is a confession not only that I know something, but that I'm convinced of something, and this is what I'm convinced of, that God has done something for me personally. And if that's not what our confession of faith is, then we need to change what our confession of faith is. Come, you say, when you're 18 or 19, maybe 17 or 20, you say to the whole congregation, come and listen. I want you to know what God has done for me. And in that little answer, yes, is that little flower that opens up to a beautiful, rich confession of Jesus Christ. He's mine, and I'm his, and you need to know that. And I'm glad to tell you that. Faith, what God has done for my soul. The psalmist invited the church to hear that confession. He didn't extend an invitation to the Egyptians to the south or the Syrians to the north or the Moabites in one direction and the Philistines in the other direction. He invited the church. Now there is a confession that David would make, not nearly as clearly as ours, to those outside of the church. 
It's more clear to us that we ought to be ready always to give an answer to those outside of the church of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Jesus said in Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before men, not just the church, but men, that those who don't glorify God might come to glorify God. And Paul picked that up in Colossians and said, walk in wisdom toward those who are outside. And Peter picked that up in that familiar passage, be ready to give an answer to those outside who ask you of the hope that you have in you. There is that. We need to make that confession of faith. That's not this text, but it's an implication of this text. We ought to be willing and eager to make that confession to somebody we meet at the gym or sitting next to us on the airplane or who works at the shop with us. We ought to look for opportunities. We ought to pray for opportunities. We ought to be eager to speak to them who don't know our Lord Jesus Christ. But that's not this text. This text is inside. You who fear God. What's interesting about that word in our text, ye who fear God, is that it's the same word in a little bit different form as is translated in verse 3, terrible. And in verse 5, terrible. That word comes up here. And the connection between the two is that both of them don't mean terrible in the sense of bad and fear in the sense of scared, but filled with awe. The works of God are awesome. And you need to come and listen to me who have awe in your hearts at what God has done for you so that we have something in common. You know what I am talking about because God has done that for you too. You who fear God. Now, look, come, come. The psalmist says, gather around me. I feel safe with you because you don't disagree with what I have to testify. You felt it yourself. And I'm going to encourage you and speak to you in such a way that you are comfortable to do the very same thing to others. I, says the psalmist, who perhaps am a more mature Christian, am going to help you, who perhaps are a less mature Christian, say to yourself, you know what? That wasn't so hard for him to do. Maybe it was, but he was bold enough to do it, and he wasn't embarrassed. He said it. What God did for him. That's marvelous. And then they go home and do the same thing with others. David doesn't speak here, or the psalmist does not speak here as an office bearer, but as a member David here does not respond to an invitation. David, will you please come and speak for us? David took the initiative here. He creates a place to speak. And he does it, as I said, to create an atmosphere where believers learn to be comfortable speaking about what God has done for them.
David's an example for us. We need to be willing to make personal testimonies. I remember what I said, and you do at the introduction of the sermon, that some of us are nervous about personal testimonies, and maybe rightly so, because in your experience, the personal testimony was a testimony that was given here behind the pulpit instead of the minister preaching. The members of the congregation came up and took their place behind the pulpit, and you didn't hear a sermon. You just heard a personal testimony. Well, that's understandable that you would be nervous about personal testimonies. Or maybe you've heard personal testimonies that one after the other always had to be a little bit more dramatic, a little bit more exciting. And if your personal testimony wasn't more exciting than the one before you, you probably didn't dare stand up. And of course, you object to that kind of personal testimony atmosphere. Or maybe your knowledge of personal testimonies is only from them, from those who, like Paul, could tell you that on such and such a date, I was an unbeliever, and on the next day, I was a believer because God came to me in a dramatic way and turned me from a persecutor of the church to a lover of Jesus Christ. And if you don't have that kind of testimony, well, probably you don't have a testimony worth speaking. And that, too, would make you leery of personal testimonies. But that's not what's going on here. This is David who, as a believer... A believer from his youth, he knew God from his very earliest days, saying to you, God has done marvelous things for my soul, and I want to tell you about them. He's comfortable doing that. He's eager for you to hear it, and he wants you to be comfortable to do the very same thing. Not to boast of yourself, not to make people tell stories about you, but to boast about God so that people go home and say what a good God we have. So you reach out your arms to others and motion them to come to you. And though you probably won't do that very quickly after church, you may do that there to a little group, but how about if you would start in your home Were you husband, come home and motion to your wife and say, Honey, I want to tell you what good things God did for me today. I cried to him in deep distress, and he heard me and didn't turn away my prayer. And now his wondrous grace I bless, and I want you to know what God did for me today in a very simple way. And isn't that creating an atmosphere in a marriage where his wife now will be comfortable to say, honey, I never dared say anything like that to you because you never said anything like that to me, but now that you have, I want to tell you what God did for my soul and we can together rejoice. We both fear God. We're not afraid of each other. And then when God gives you children, if he does, Dad goes off to work, mom is home with the little ones, and she reads the Bible story book and doesn't just tell them facts. She says, 
Children, I want you to know that this is what God did for me. For me. I love him. He saved my soul. And there's nothing more important for me in all of the world to talk about than that. Let us start in the safe confines of our marriages and our homes with our children when they are young so that when they get to be teenagers, they're not nervous to speak about what God has done for them. Perhaps then after we've read the Bible in family worship, we take out the Psalter and we sing together and we take a moment to speak about what God says to us in the Psalms and how important that is to us. We could go on and on. And then we come to Bible study and young people society with children who are accustomed to speaking about what God has done for them. And adults who are accustomed to speaking to their spouses and their family members about what God has done for them. And after we've opened the Bible and determined what God says there, objectively and factually, we are willing and eager to make application of that and say, this is what God has done for me. A personal testimony to other God fears. And then maybe after church this evening, we'll be willing to talk about something other than the big game yesterday or the big buck that you shot last week or whatever else it is that's on your mind that's not bad, but just not so important. Talk after church with the people of God about the goodness of God to you. They'll maybe be surprised that you were willing to do that, but it will create an atmosphere in which they hear you and they say, he was willing and I may be willing also. Are you permitted to speak to somebody outside of the church about what God has done If you've never spoken to anybody inside the church about what God has done for you, what will you say? What God has done for me, spoken in the church, will enable me without hypocrisy to be eager to speak to the man I see in the gym or the woman who sits next to me on the airplane, or the neighbor who isn't a believer about what God has done. I want you to know, I say to them, about what God has done for me. I want you to know about the hope that I have and the fearlessness I live in with regard to tomorrow. God has been good to me, and he's going to be good to me. If you want to know, I'll tell you how God put me through a water and through a fire and put me into a net and let others ride over my head. But I want you to know that God brought me out and put me in a wealthy place. You may know that. And isn't that the kind of testimony outside the church that will bring them to glorify God with you? What 
God has done for our souls. Let's speak. And if you ask why, I'm not asking the question why with regard to what are we aiming at. That's a good question to ask too. But that's not the question of the third point of this sermon. The third point of this sermon is asking why would you? That is, what drives you? What fuel in you will bring that confession out of your mouth to others? What is it? Is it because you must? Because Jesus says to his disciples and to all of us, you who do not confess me, I will not confess before the Father. You who deny me, I'll deny before him. And you say, well, I must. Is it because Jesus said, let your light shine before men? And perhaps there is something to that. David's example here becomes a mandate for us. There are mandates for us that are commands, thou shalt. And there are mandates for us in the Bible that come by way of example. And this is one of them, what David did, we ought to do. We ought to do. But that's not why. That's not the answer to the question why, not first of all the answer. Or is it perhaps you say it's just what we do as Christians, it's the way God made us and that's why. So that if you ask me why I confess him and tell what God has done for me, it's because that's just the nature of a Christian. It's like asking a bird, why do you fly? And the bird would say, because I'm a bird. And you ask a deer, why do you leap? And the deer would say, because I'm a deer. And a lion, why do you roar? And the lion would say, because I'm a lion. And so you ask a Christian, why do you confess? You say, because I'm a Christian. It's just part of my nature. And there's something about that too. It's not a part of your first nature. My first nature, silent. My first nature zips my lips. My first nature is embarrassed and ashamed. I want to talk about the big game and the big buck and everything else but what God has done for me. And that's the problem that we have, isn't it? But I have another nature, and that other nature is a Christian nature, the life of Christ in me. And according to that life of Christ, that's what I do. God made me a priest devoted to him, a king fighting for him, and he made me a prophet who is able to speak or him. That's who I am. You ask a bird, why do you fly? Because I'm a bird. And a Christian, why do you confess? Because I'm a Christian. And yet, there's something about that too that's not satisfying, isn't it? Why? Well, the answer is not in the text except by implication. And the implication is so clear that you can't help but say it. Listen to David. And listen to David in the words of the psalm that we sing. Come and hear all ye that fear the Lord. While I with grateful heart record what God has done for me, I cried to Him in deep distress. And now His wondrous grace I bless, for He has made me free. The work that God did for the psalmist, in other words, was so marvelous and so rich and so gracious and so beautiful that David said, I want to tell others about what God has done for me. I want to. It's not because I must. It's not because that's a part of my nature. 
Though those are both true, but it's because God has been so good to me, I can't help but speak to you about him. And that makes us ashamed, doesn't it? You who are in college and have a roommate, how often to your roommate do you speak about what God has done for you? You who have workmates, how often do you speak about what God has done for you? You who have husbands and wives and children, how often do you speak about what God's done for you? And then you're ashamed. And then you walk back and remember the cross of Christ and the marvel of God to you who took you out of the pit and the miry clay delivered you through the water, is preserving you in the fire, is promising you heaven. You stand at the cross and you say, what a good God he is to me. And if I ever forget that, what God has done for me in Christ, no wonder I'm silent. But insofar as I am remembering that, insofar, I want to speak. So, Go home tonight, people of God. And there's one thing you ought not do, and there's one thing you ought to do. What you ought not do tonight is talk about how infrequently you have spoken about what God has done for you, and then you feel guilty. You may do that some other time. Go home tonight and speak. What marvels God has done for us. Just speak. It doesn't need to be eloquent. It doesn't need to be long. Though you ought eventually to be able to go on and on and open up that flower so that it buds in all of its beauty about what God's done for you. But just a little. And that will break the ice, as it were, for you to speak about the goodness of God to you. Just a little bit out there after church, or a little bit in Bible study. Speak. And that will help others say, I want to speak too. God is good. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank thee for thy word. We pray that we may go home not ashamed, but forgiven. That our shame is taken away in Christ. That we are approved by thee and accepted in the beloved. And perfect and precious to thee. And may that then motivate us, O God, to say to others what we ought to say. Forgive us, Lord, for our failures. Grow us in grace and the knowledge of Christ and loosen our tongues that thy name may be praised by us. For Jesus' sake, amen.